Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. This episode, we'd like to welcome Susan Breen. Susan is an environmental activist, political candidate, radical feminist, and mother of three. She has been an international coordinator for Extinction Rebellion and is currently organizing with Deep Green Resistance and the Shale Must Fall Coalition. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast, Susan. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Yeah, well, I'm excited for many reasons, uh, partly because you are in Ireland and I spent some time in Ireland after graduating from college in 2000. A friend and I hitchhiked around the country for two months and we learned a lot about the Irish culture and the landscape and it was pretty great. So maybe you could just tell us in general, what's the activist scene like in Ireland? Um, so currently, I like in many places, organizing and activism is, is difficult due to COVID uh, and all the restrictions that are in place. Um, so currently, activism is, is happening mainly online. Uh, we had a small uh, number of an action in Dublin, actually, in December, uh, you know, which was socially distanced and just a small number of people for the Shale Must Fall campaign. And there is stuff happening. But in terms of the huge kind of uh, crowds that we had moving through the rebellion weeks, etc. Um, nothing like that is, is possible at the moment for obvious reasons. For sure. Yeah. COVID's definitely putting a, a crimp in many of our plans. But let's say pre-COVID, is, is it our people engaged in environmental issues? Do they not care? What's going on with that in Ireland? Um, it's certainly far better than it used to be. I think the level of awareness that's been raised even in the last five years is, is pretty incredible, um, to be honest. And something that I'm very happy to see a movement towards is people kind of developing interest in who are the people that are doing these things you know we know there's issues but where are they coming from and and how do we stop them rather than just having a sense of of climate change and all the bad things that are happening people actually want to know who's doing this you know who's responsible um so that's something that i find incredibly encouraging um i mean there there is a lot of you know, the, the schools, obviously, you know, all the Fridays for Future movement and Extinction Rebellion. And there's been really significant protests um, and demonstrations and actions that have happened over the last few years. And generally, we've had extremely good support from the public. So I'm not sure that we would have had the level of support that we did have even 10 years ago. But people are certainly becoming more and more aware. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder how the landscape makes it different from say US activism, because one of the things that struck me in Ireland is despite its beauty, tons of natural beauty along the coasts and the moors and just all of these uh, really like, I don't wanna say desolate, but it just has this uh, archaic ancient feel to it. A lot is overrun with sheep. A lot of it is really eroded. There's, there are no natural forests that I was able to find. I mean, I know they exist, so how, how do you think that the fact that basically people have lived in a small area for so long and degraded the landscape over time, how do you think that might affect sensibilities towards the natural world, if at all? I think, I mean, it's, it definitely impacts on people's kind of interaction with the, with the natural world and where it's very much been, and in many areas where, where the, the landscape is so harsh, 
where for survival, people literally, you know, had to take everything they could possibly use to survive. So like you said, I mean, I think for anybody coming here, often people think, you know, the, the Emerald Isle, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, there's lots of grass, but it's just all agricultural land. You know, if, I think we still have the worst forest cover in Europe and there's no, uh, there doesn't seem to be any real attempts to change that, um, not by the government anyway. So yeah, I think in terms of, of the landscape, it's, it's very functional kind of, um, a very functional kind of interaction and a very functional relationship rather than there being a particular sacredness or obviously for some people, but I don't think that's something that is, is commonplace or widespread among the psyche here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's that kind of level of, of uh, kind of spiritual con connection um, with the land, which is something that that's obviously makes environmental organizing more difficult and and developing that that kind of interest or understanding is is more difficult because of that. Right. The natural beauty is still there. I, I still think the Irish coastline is the most beautiful coastline I've ever seen. So it's just, uh, you know, fields coming down to these. For me, it was just mostly these empty beaches. And I loved it. I, I had a great time. Uh, is there much peat harvesting still going on? Um, there is the peat harvesting, yeah, but the, the main company that were um, kind of involved in that are, are, have now announced that they're, they're going to totally stop um, in terms of the production of the peat. You know, Board, Board Namona was the, was the main company involved there. Um, there was issues then about legalities around people being able to harvest if they had, you know, uh, peas available in their own in their own lands that they could kind of harvest themselves. There was a lot of issues arose about that because people obviously felt it was their right to harvest their own peas, and you know, so there was a lot of difficult kind of uh, uh, conversations about it. But the fact that Board Namona now, <clears throat> excuse me, um, are going to stop the production is is a major a major win. So for folks who don't know, I mean, people have probably heard of peat. So peat, peat bogs, these boggy, wet areas, and it's a very particular kind of soil, I guess you, you'd say. And they cut it out and they leave it to dry. And that was a very common form of heating across Ireland. And you'd see these bricks. They're very hard when they, when they end up drying. And they're just like at gas stations and stuff like that. And you buy them on pallets and stuff like that. And something I won't talk about much, but um, we were sold a handful of peat because we thought it was hash. <laughs> so in, in the town of Eskeaton, the town of Eskeaton, and the kid's name is Mousy. So if you know him, He's a bad dude. You weren't the first and you won't be the last, Josh. No. Stupid <laughs> Americans. We come in there. We're like, well, I guess that's what that is. Uh, no, it was Pete. It was like one penny's <laughs> worth of Pete. Well, anyway, well, that's good to hear that there's been progress on that. And But there are other things that they are extracting from the land in Ireland uh, in terms of the Shale Must Fall campaign. So can you talk a little bit mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So uh, just about how Shale Must Fall um, kind of came about, um, Esteban Sarvat for, of EcoLeaks. I'm not sure if you're aware of him, but he's an amazing activist uh, from Argentina originally. He's now living in Europe because of the persecution um, that he suffered because of the files he exposed on the fracking industry and, and government kind of uh, knowledge of the dangers in Argentina. 
Um, so Esteban and I worked together during Rebellion Week last year. We wallpapered the uh, the ministry ministry for the environment um, or the Department of the Environment with uh, science reports. Uh, so we've been in contact since and he he did, did a number of talks for DGR and we wanted to work together on something. So we formed the Shale Must Fall Coalition. Uh, so this is lots of different activists from different groups from all over the world who are coming together um, in the fight against the shale and the, the fracking industry. And one of the main things that we're trying to do with Shale Must Fall is to highlight the voices of the people in the global south and bring their testimonies and bring our actions to the doors of the companies who are doing this because you know obviously they're mainly based in in Europe uh, and obviously the, the global north so trying to make those connections and join those dots so that we can actually be strategic and we can highlight and try and hopefully protect these the, these frontline activists who are obviously facing extreme dangers by doing the work that they do um, and bringing it to the doorstep of, of the companies that are that are the, the climate criminals uh, that are involved in, in this industry. Yeah, so yeah, in other countries, for sure, activists are killed. In the US, I mean, we're, we're ignored. We're, I've been put in jail a lot, but yeah, no one's tried to kill me. And that's, that's definitely a different scene going on in South America. That seems to be where much of that has happened. And yeah, that is really important for folks to be aware of. We've lost mm -hmm. a lot of people to literally being killed for doing activism. That's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's terrible and tremendous that that's uh, happening. Um, and also Africa as well, the, the activists in Africa are doing, I mean, the bravery is, is mind blowing. Mm -hmm. um, so we have some of the people from DGR Africa and some other, some other uh, activists from Africa. And yeah, their stories would, would literally break your heart. So anything we can do to try and highlight their, their plight and, and support them in what they're doing is, is vitally important. Um, it, it's amazing because yeah, there there are some real repercussions for doing that sort of work elsewhere. Again, in in you know Europe and the U.S., sure we get pushed back and people think we're weirdos and then we're kind of pushed to the margins of society. But the the repercussions for doing our work are, are pretty limited versus people doing it in that country. So that's that's showing how brave and courageous those folks are and also a reminder for folks living in our country we have hardly any real we're making sacrifices but no one's really going to kill us for our work so there's no real excuse to not do this this kind of work just because you're afraid of what uh your neighbor might think you know th these mm -hmm. other folks are dealing with some real uh danger so i think that's important to keep in mind so in ireland is there much fracking going on so currently we have a, a ban on fracking in ireland not offshore but onshore fracking um, and currently we are trying to have a ban brought in on the importation of LNG because, you know, we had a ban on fracking, but then they were trying to build an LNG terminals so it could still be imported. Yep. So that's been the campaign that's ongoing here. It's been promised by the governments that, that came in recently that we would have that legally down so that we would have a ban, but it has yet to happen. And while we don't have it actually finalized it means that there could still be an application go in for another 
um, terminal. And once it's built, it's it's a different ball game trying to to fight against it. And um, so we're in a very good position in Ireland. The campaign here has been incredibly successful, thankfully. But as always, you, you know, we're not out of the woods um, at all. So currently we're, we're, we're going well, but once we have everything down on in legislation, uh, then we can celebrate. So in the US, I would say awareness of climate, if not really doing anything about it, is fairly mainstream. Would you say that's the case in Ireland? Um, yeah, I guess I think at this stage, yes, I think I think it is. I, I don't think there's many people aren't aware to some degree or have some level of acceptance that we're we're in trouble, <laughs> at least. Sure. Yeah, well, that's that's a positive thing. I mean, it does take maybe not the entire society to be engaged with things, but you definitely it's hard if the majority is opposed. But if most people are like, yeah, that's fine. Maybe you can't really count on them for help, but maybe they're not going to be pushing back as much. So that seems like a, a positive thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're involved with several different organizations, Extinction Rebellion and Deep Green Resistance. Uh, so what what else has been going on with Extinction Rebellion and why are you involved with them? Um, with Extinction Rebellion, I haven't been as involved in the last year um, I was the international coordinator for when we, when it started over here um, up until after rebellion week two um, so currently I mean there's a good number of activists involved in XOR and some very good activists but currently there's a lot of inactivity due to uh, COVID restrictions etc um, so uh, yeah as I said I moved you know I've been involved in both organizations for um, for a number of years but I've moved most of my kind of organizing over towards deep green resistance for the last year uh, or more now. So um, that'd kind of be my main focus rather than rather than XOR. Sure. So maybe tell folks who aren't aware, what would be a distinction between Extinction Rebellion and deep green resistance? And then maybe what would be some overlap? Mm-hmm. Um, well, in terms of overlap, um, there's, you know, a, an amazing community. There, the kind of ethos in terms of kind of respecting one another and building community um, is is very strong. Also, the there would be an overlap in the kind of resilience aspect of the strategy in terms of forming communities and and you know mutual aid, etc. There'd be overlap there. Uh, where it would differ more is the fact that. I think DGR has a much more realistic analysis, even though it seems to people who maybe aren't as radical, um, it seems to be maybe, you know, quite out there. But I think there's a, an acceptance within the DGR analysis of how bad the situation is and a realistic approach to dealing with it if you consider how bad things actually are. Um, it would also be a radical organization rather than a kind of a liberal organization and it would also be radical feminist um, and like totally opposed to kind of solutions that maybe some some people in XOR would support like some of the green tech solutions and stuff uh, where DGR is very clear on the issues around those as well. And what are the origins of deep green resistance? And Deep Green Resistance was founded, um, I think, in 2010. I wasn't around at the time, <laughs> unfortunately, um, by Derek Jensen, Lear Keith and, and Max Wilbert. Um, and yeah, it's it's grown into a global organization. 
uh, again, of just kind of very not as it's not a mass movement or never will be, but more a community of very, very involved activists and very committed people who are have settled on a, on a very kind of radical analysis um, and a very radical strategy. So when you say radical, what does that mean? So when I say radical, I mean in terms of the analysis is going to the root of the problem, um, which we see as industrial, the kind of industrial civilization um, and all the pillars and, and structures of oppression that go with that for, for both people and nature and, and all living, living creatures on the planet. Um, so that would be what I mean by radical is that it, it's going to the root of the problem and trying to address that in a way that is, you know, we don't believe that we can convince the people that are murdering the planet to stop what they're doing by being really kind or sending the petitions or uh, we believe in a kind of more militant strategy, not because any of us want that or any of us are kind of geared towards uh, militancy in any way. It's just because we don't think that anything else is going to make it stop. And when you say militancy, what does that mean? <laughs> in terms of militancy, uh, well, I guess you could say that the strategy, DGR's strategy is, you know, using military strategy to actually try and take on an opponent that is obviously far bigger than us and has far much uh, far more uh, resources at its beckoning um so using the information that we can take from military strategy and history and applying that to what we see as, as a war on the planet um so that would be what i mean by by militancy because when people hear militancy they think armed insurrection so are you talking about utilizing firearms, just to be clear with the listeners. Um, no, that's not, the, the Jew strategy, the DW strategy is, is, is very dense. Um, and as I said, it's not that anybody in DGR has a love of violence. Um, it would be more in terms of advocating for people who would take out infra, you know, infrastructure that allows the, the industrial system to continue doing what it's doing and and destroying the planet or what's left of it. Um, so that's what we would be talking about more so than taking up arms. Um, but again, you know, you have you have resistance movements that have done that in in parts of the world, and you know what they've done is protecting their own land base or protecting their own families against huge conglomerates conglomerates that have come in and are, are going to murder them and, and destroy their land or destroy their water. So, you know, we often talk about nonviolence in the West as though, you know, people who are actually on the front lines can just say, I don't believe in violence. It's not going to affect me. It's very easy for activists in the West to say nobody should be using any form of violence and they totally disregard the fact that people on the front lines are facing the most extreme horrific violence to themselves and their family and to their land base. So when we talk about violence and nonviolence, there's a lot of different interpretations and there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different uh, understandings of that and a lot of different scenarios and different contexts, depending on where you are in the world and, and the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, the term violence, like a lot of words, is left the dictionary it seems i mean some people say speech is violence 
Personally, I don't believe that, but obviously words can hurt, but they definitely hurt in a different way than punching. And then people say that, say, um, destroying a, some logging equipment is the same thing as killing a logger. And it's just not. <laughs> so personally, when I hear the term violent, yeah, I don't think, oh, they, they destroyed a, a logging equipment. I don't see that as violence. That is sabotage. It's, it's illegal. I mean, that's, it's true. It's, that is a crime in America. And, you know, there, whether or not it's a good strategy, uh, it's, doesn't seem to me to be violence. But so would, would DGR supports kind of like old school earth firstian direct action, which sometimes veers into what would be called, you know, technological sabotage in terms of uh, equipment and things like that. Well, what um, would, what DGR, I mean, would kind of advocate for is, is resistance and a life centered resistance. So it's, it's protection of the, the natural world. And obviously from scenario to scenario, that's going to be different, you know, um, but we're an above ground organization, mm-hmm. but we, what we try and do is build a culture of resistance so that people who are doing work that is actually effective um, and that are taking risks, that there's a culture of resistance there to, to support them and support the work that they're doing. Because obviously as people, if people are engaging in work that is actually more effective and more strategic, they're putting themselves at greater and greater risk. So if you have a swell of the population that is supportive of what you're doing, that's one of the best ways you have or the best protections you have in terms of, you know, the state um, and what the repercussions may be for yourself or or whoever else you're involved with. So when I was first starting out with environmental issues, I was in Eugene, Oregon, and this was the time when the eco-terrorism, in scare quotes, was a big thing. And, you know, I was within, uh, what do you call it, like a one degree of separation between folks who went to jail for maybe two degrees of separation uh, for eco-terrorism, as in they had done different things from, what were what were some of the things? There was a uh, a horse corral, a Bureau of Land Management wild horse corral that was burned down. There were ski areas that had destruction done. No human beings were harmed in this. And that was the clear intention. It seems like a lot of effort was put into that. But because the BLM aspect, so Bureau of Land Management was rounding up wild horses from the landscape because there was a government tie-in, as in I'm opposing this government policy, and then because there was property destruction, that was called eco-terrorism. Now, it seems like that's died down a lot, and it seems like in the U.S., they've finally realized they have more important things to worry about than, frankly, what is what I just call eco-vandals. They, they were, it was vandalism, you know, and uh, like I got arrested when I was 13 for vandalism. I, I wasn't a terrorist, you know, so have you heard much talk about the eco-terrorism thing coming back, or does that not seem to be that much of a concern of the the state? Well, I I believe that it's always one of the first things they'll do is try and demonize activists who are doing things that are actually functional and actually have an impact. So I've seen it myself with even, I mean, really quite, you know, benign actions that have happened over here where doing anything on the media, they will, try and put a thrust on it sometimes as though 
you know, you're doing something that's really, you know, dangerous for people or not actually saying equal sabotage, but may, kind of trying to give the impression that you're a bit unhinged or that you're doing things that are dangerous to the mass of people or playing on people's sense of community and trying to give an impression that you actually are doing something that's going to really damage everybody. Of course, they always disregard the issue at hand, which is what you're trying to protect people from. You know, they will focus on the fact that you might have done something that may have caused some level of, you know, not not even discomfort, just maybe somebody was late getting to somewhere they needed to go or whatever. Um, but they'll never talk about why you're there and who's responsible for that and why no one's doing anything about it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't I haven't I don't think over here that that there's been much talk of, of eco saboteurs um, and different in the rest of the world, I'm sure. Well, here in the States, it doesn't seem to be going on as much or it's not widely reported. I know that up here in Colorado, there are some logging projects and the equipment was vandalized. It wasn't talked about much. So it seems as if maybe media or police is realizing if you don't talk about it, it's more likely to go away, which is probably a better strategy than making it sound all cool the way that they, they, so in some ways it can actually work. I mean, the eco saboteur, like that sounds pretty cool. Nobody really <laughs> likes being called a terrorist. That's not really fun for anyone, but it doesn't have the same connotations. <laughs> no, but would you say that that is, you're saying that's a, a necessary tool in the toolkit, some form of, let's just say it's, it's, it's a form of property destruction because that's kind of what it is, right? So that's what well, we're talking about. I mean, I think all you have to do is look at mainstream environmentalism and all the good intentions and all the good work and all the amazing activists, et cetera, that are involved in that and have been for decades and decades um, and see that everything is worse. Everything is getting worse and worse. Um, you know, there's no... Uh, there's no sign of any kind of respite for the living world whatsoever. So despite all that good work, it's not working, you know, it's not working. And apart from that, there's situations where it's just co-opted and, you know, actually these companies then use all this good intention and all this hard work to try and continue perpetrating the violence against nature that they're already involved in. And, a lot of people aren't aware enough to to see what's happening. So there has to be another strategy. And when you consider what's happening here, if you actually really become aware of what's happening to our home, to our kin, to our families, to the future of our children, to everything, the level of violence that's being perpetrated towards every living thing on this planet 24 seven is absolutely mind blowing. So what is a rational response to that? Really, you know, that's that's the question for me. And I don't think that I have seen anything that if I was to be somebody who was frontline against the new pipeline in Africa um, or, you know, in Colombia or wherever else, I wouldn't be thinking that, you know, it was OK to just say, oh, no, it's it's just going to disrupt somebody's day or, oh, no, it's putting me at risk when my family are the ones with a gun to their head, you know? So it's trying to bring in that international solidarity as well and an acceptance of the level of violence, violence that's being perpetrated on, on the, the living world uh, and everything, you know, everything we care about all the time. So 
that to me is is uh, the, the responses so far to me are not rational. Well, folks who listen to the podcast know that I don't think that the environmental movement thus far has been very successful. Uh, there's been some gains over the years, far many, far more losses. Uh, yeah, we're definitely losing the battle. And I think that's a really important perspective to come from is we're getting our asses kicked and we, the natural world, however you want to put it, we're definitely losing. So continuing with the same strategies over and over again might not work. Of course, there are some strategies that have potential to backfire. So the question is, would you know property destruction kind of thing is that something that the general public is going to be supportive of is that's going to create more of a backlash on people is it effective i think those are all questions that are that are fair to ask and mm -hmm. I, I so basically deep green resistance is not partaking in them directly they're the above ground organization that's kind of holding a place for those discussions in a sense well, yes, yeah, as, as I said, we're an above or above ground organization. Mm -hmm. But when you look at, you know, the efficacy of some of the um, actions that have involved uh, eco saboteurs, etc., compared to mainstream kind of normal environmental actions, I mean, the actual real impact is so different in terms of shutting down the supply of oil through a pipeline or you know it's it's a really different outcome and what we have to think about at this point is outcomes you know not whether we had a an action that made everybody feel good and there was a great sense of community and all these wonderful things it's is this actually making it harder for the people that are waging war on the planet is it making it harder for them to do it is it making it stop even for a period of time whatever we have the ability to do is it effective you know and that's what we have to think about like we're our time is up here like we have no more time left and everything is at stake so what we have to think about with everything we do is it going to be effective and that's where we have to actually weigh up and look at an action that involves maybe you know uh, sabotage or whatever else and actions that don't and see well what's actually going to give us what we need in terms of making making this stop or at least slow down. Mm -hmm. Well, my my expertise has been on forest advocacy. And so I can look in the Pacific Northwest and I can see, OK, there had been a lot of protest and petition stuff. There's also been a lot of paper wrenching, as they call it, which is lawsuits against timber sales. And then there was also some eco sabotage where some logging equipment or whatever has been burned. There have been roads that have been dug up. There have been blockades. There have been tree sits. There have been, um, you know, uh, spiking trees, which is when people would put these long nails into trees. And the question is, has any of that been effective? In some ways, oh, look, they're logging less old growth in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, because most of it's gone. Uh, so if you look at the percentage of what's left and the logging that's still going on, it's probably equivalent. So from my perspective, nothing, nothing has actually been effective. Uh, the question is whether certain aspects need to be ramped up. Personally, my thoughts, and I'd be curious, it's, it's about consciousness. So if people are not aware of the value of the natural world, in terms of its right to exist on its own, and then the obvious 
connections to humanity, which you think would be easier to make. Like, all right, I, I want this river to exist on its own. That's an advanced way of thinking, really, in, in many ways. We need this river to drink from. That seems pretty basic, but uh, even that's hard. So in my mind, until people actually get their heads around that, I don't know what will be that effective. What do you think about that? Well, I think everything is necessary, you know, and, and what I always say to people when they're talking about environmental activism, or, or a lot of people, you know, they'll have this enormous sense of frustration, which is totally understandable. I think we all feel it. But what I always say to people is whatever you do, whatever you can do, whatever platform you have, that's your part, you know, and and that's what we have. We can't say to everyone, you have to be an eco saboteur or you have to be working legally against governments, you know, bringing lawsuits or filing lawsuits. But everyone has different capabilities. And the main thing is that people understand what's happening and that they use what they have and they use it in a way that's brave. You know, I don't mean you know, right, sign the petition once every two years. I mean, actually making sacrifices, you know, making sacrifices, doing what's within their capabilities, but but pledging their allegiance, as Derek says, pledging their allegiance to the natural, natural world. Um, and I think that's what it comes down to. There's never going to be a broad, you know, everybody does this and that's what's going to work for us. We have to fight this at every possible level that we can on every platform and every every inch of everybody's lives is taken up with this in terms of it's going to impact every one of us. So we have to, you know, we have to give back. We have to push back against that with whatever skills we have, whatever time we have. Um, and, and that's, I think, what's the most important thing. Yeah, we're all coming at it from a different angle. Yeah, the question is whether whether it's enough. And yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I have different folks on the podcast. I would say actually most of the people who come on my podcast are less optimistic than me, which is saying something because I'm not super optimistic, but I'm probably like in the percentile, like uh, 88th percentile of pessimism, but I still have, you know, some optimism. How, how optimistic were you on that, <laughs> that scale I just made up? Um, <laughs> how optimistic am I? It fluctuates. Um, honestly I'm not optimistic but I have to be you know there's there's a part of me that has faith in people um that has faith that that in the connections that people have with the with the living world um I'm also mother of three children so kind of just accepting it's it's done it's just not an option um, but I do find there's it can, what, what's most wrenching for me, I think, is raising small children and creating, you know, a, their little magical world. And, you know, it's beautiful and it's perfect. And all, you know, always knowing that this is this huge, huge, just uh, maelstrom that's looming that I have to drip feed. You know, I have to drip feed parts of of what I know to be reality into my children and, and fracture that little safe bubble that they feel they're in. Um, and I find that the polarity of reality and, and what I, what I've created um, is, is really, really hard to, to deal with. 
um, sometimes. And I say that in, in a position of total privilege where I'm, I mean, I'm impoverished, I'm impoverished by most people's standards in the West, but I mean, in terms of globally, I'm incredibly privileged, you know, I'm, I'm in, in pretty much safety. Um, I have a roof over my head. So my concern for my kids is, is a fraction of what, you know, millions of people on the planet's uh, concerns are. Um, but on a personal level, that's, that's probably where I, I feel it most. Um, Mm -hmm. just trying to walk that line between the two yeah i understand that and talking about poverty and stuff like that because i recent podcast with florence blondell she comes from uganda and then i've had uche isiake from nigeria and they are environmental campaigners and what they're pointing at is well a lot of folks living there and i would say frankly around the world the us and uk and ireland mm -hmm. are kind of living hand to mouth so the idea of well this forest has a right to exist it's like yeah well i need to cook my food for tonight so i'm going to take the wood from this nearby forest and uh you know like i i don't blame them for that like what what else are they supposed to do so do you think that there is almost like you have to be at a certain level of uh, above a certain level of poverty to really even start caring about environmental issues? What do you think about that? No, I, I don't think so. But, but I mean, I think to be able to actively fight, if you're just fighting for your own survival, you, you can't exactly fight for anything else. Right. But then you're somebody who is aware, you know, so fighting for your own survival is part of the resistance, you know what I mean? And um, these people just fighting to survive is is resistance work. Uh, but obviously, I think that's one genius step of this of the system is to create a situation where people are just so focused on on surviving either poverty or, or surviving living in, a, in an environment that's incredibly hostile and unnatural, um, that you can't focus on protecting your your community or your your land base because you're just solely focused on on your own individual self um so there's so many things stacked against people becoming active and i think that's where having a, a community is really really important uh, for people that are stepping into the environmental movement having a, a community that's supportive and aware is really really important for for giving people the kind of sustenance to continue working in in resistance because we all know it, it's it's not something that's that's uh, easy a lot of the time uh, being immersed in in all that information. Um, so yeah, I think that's something that's really important. And also training, like in DGR, we do training in all different um, areas. Like we train, in, we give a training on biocentrism, radical feminism strategy you know all these things that are really practical practical ways to understand and articulate the main cruxes of the issue and the things that can be a barrier between people understanding and and having a having that connection with the living world as well i feel is something that's incredibly important for sustaining your your resistance work um i know i certainly changed when i started reading uh, derek's work and I'd been an environmentalist. I was in my first direct action when I was in my teens. I'd been, you know, doing it all my life. But when I, something just clicked and it reconnected me on that absolutely kind of spiritual level with the land. And it, it opened up the conversation 
that that kind of interaction that I would have had when I was a child, when I was a small child, it opened that back up and it changed my modus operandi in terms of I was like doing my doing my work and doing something that was very important when I was campaigning. But it changed to just to, to fighting for for a beloved or fighting for some something that, you know, was was my family, you know. Um, so I think regaining that connection with with nature uh, is is really important for being able to sustain the, the motivation to to work as well, you know, and keep going. Right. And yeah, I'm familiar with a lot of Derek Jensen's work. I, I started reading his stuff in my early environmental days and i've been on his podcast a few times talking about different issues and yeah i think there's a lot of value in that analysis and my my understanding is that in terms of root causes he and then folks in dgr speak about civilization and i i'm a little bit fuzzy on when civilization really starts because it's like well were the Mayans a civilization? Were, you know, pre-Columbian native tribes a civilization and stuff like that? So I'm not expecting you to analyze or speak for Jensen, but it just in your mind, where does, where did we start going wrong? <laughs> yeah, I certainly wouldn't, I w certainly wouldn't speak for Derek or, uh, or the others, in fact. Um, but in terms of where, where do I think it goes, it, it all went wrong. Well, I mean, if you have people that are living at a high enough density that their all their resources have to be imported and they can't survive off their own land base, then you're automatically into a situation where they have to take them from somewhere else. You know, so that then involves kind of military force and, and all those other aspects of civilization come in because you don't generally give away your resources. You know, if you have people living in, in say people in cities, if they have to import all the resources from, you know, it, it's not something that that tends to happen in a kind of a egalitarian friendly way. So once, once it's grown to that scale, um, it, becomes, it becomes impossible for the people to actually sustain themselves. So then they're taking sustenance from someone or some, somewhere else. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it spirals on from, from there. Sure. Well, because that's definitely what I appreciate about some of the analysis in terms of deep green resistance and folks like that is like, okay, we're, it's, it's finding out what is at the heart of things. And Green Root Podcast, I mean, I'm about getting to the root of issues. I feel like there are many roots in some ways, and maybe there is one master root, perhaps, but certainly when we we are as in humans got to the like you say the density of there are so many people and then now we're outstripping our land base and of course certain animal species have done that and then they've disappeared uh, it seems to be a little bit built into the plan but it's not a way of maintaining and i think it's clear that while humans are a part of nature, we are in many ways apart from nature. We are doing stuff that no creature on earth has ever done. It's just not even not even a comparison. So there's that argument of, and it's a kind of a tired argument, like, well, if humans do it, it's natural. It's like, all right, well, then let's not use that term because that's just stupid. Mm -hmm. Like the idea, <laughs> like 
that building a skyscraper is the same as building a beaver dam is just like a dumb thing to say, frankly. I think something as well in terms of getting to the root, you know, when we talk about it being necessary for there to be a biocentric outlook, you know, for, for people to have that that kind of connection, that intimate connection with the with the natural world. Um, when you think about children that are growing up in cities, and I'm not saying all children, but I know for myself, you know, I was immersed in, in the land when I was growing up. And I've found that any kind of tempestuous periods in my life, I've always had a, a, a sense of um, stability and a sense of belonging and a sense of, of just um, being able to, to get through things, you know, and I totally put that down to having that connection as a child and being immersed in the land and, and being able to go outside and feel a, an absolutely cellular collect, co connection to the land. Um, and so for so many kids growing up in city environments where that's not something they have access to, and I can't imagine how that must impact on your on your life across the board as you grow up and in terms of what you'll do to, to protect the yeah. land that's not even that's not even something you've been in, in contact with you know so we had a really good discussion about biocentrism actually with one of the training groups and that was a point that that somebody made and she kind of said one of the things that we have to do is focus on giving children that connection that's far more worthwhile than trying to give it to people when they've they've grown up and hardened to it but try and instill it from the time that they're they're actually really small um so yeah that that's another another aspect to it i think yeah i agree i used to work with kids but i hated the schools so i hated mm -hmm. school when i was in it and then i was like oh, i'm gonna work with kids because i like working with kids and i was thinking in that regard and then mm -hmm. i'm sitting in a classroom again with like fluorescent lights and i'm like what the hell am i doing so i had to get out of there but yeah, I think the programs where it's taking kids from the inner city into the wild, that's some of the most incredible stuff possible. And a lot of times it's like, it's like the bad kids. And those are the kids kind of who need it the most. And they have a lot of bad kids. I was a bad kid in some way. Like I got in trouble. I didn't hurt anyone physically, but I was, I ran my mouth a lot and did what I wasn't supposed to do. So it's like a lot of spirit, right? And so a lot of these spirited kids take them in the natural world all of a sudden that can change their life around and yeah i feel really sad for kids who never grew up with that because you don't appreciate it and frankly it scares the shit out of you you know if you don't spend much time i mean i spend a lot of time in the forest it, it scares me plenty so the idea of people who have never been in the forest it's like a like an icky just thing or, or it's an irrelevant thing and and that i might even be that might even be worse so yeah i think having that immersion and that place to go. And I experienced that as well as like growing up, like just as kind of a weirdo going out into nature was just a nice place. I could get my head together. And, and I don't know if it's, I definitely think I had appreciation for the natural world, but I think sometimes it's just like, let me just get away from you people for a little bit. And this is the place I could do it. And then maybe over time, or I, I, I always remember having appreciation for the natural world. And I think we do naturally, little kids love playing in the water. So I think that that's pretty inherent. But all mm -hmm. I know is that I would walk around, I was lucky enough to live in property that was adjacent to this, not quite wild area, but it was a, an untamed area. And 
I spent a lot of time there and just walking around and, and enjoying it and seeing the seasons change. And then came the time where they wanted to build this road in and I didn't know what to do. I was, I don't know, 12 or something like that. And so the only thing I could think to do, I put like logs in the way and then I pushed over the porta potty and that was like, I don't know what else to do. No one's here to help me. That was it. They still built this little road. It, it, it didn't end up being too bad, but that was my first experience of a sacred special place. And then they're just coming into it for no reason and being like, I'm not going to let you do it. And I think it's probably a lot of us who are environmental campaigners have experienced something like that. So did you ever have a special place that was encroached upon or was it just more in general? You felt this is all special. Um, yeah, like both really. Uh, well, both my parents were were environmentalists, um, so it was something that I was always kind of aware of, and also, you know, I would have had been kind of encouraged in having that kind of very natural connection with with trees and the land and stuff as well, um, mainly from my dad. Uh, but yeah, I I think there was also a place that I really loved that was. Um, cut down it was only a small little copse but it was somewhere that I, I used to go and it was full of bluebells and wild things and it was just it was just somewhere that was really magical to me um and the farmer wanted to cut it down because they wanted to actually dig a hole to I don't know put stuff in whatever <laughs> but they asked my dad like my parents wouldn't have been well off at all and they asked my dad if he would uh, if he helped to cut down the trees, then he could keep the firewood, which obviously they could have done with, and he wouldn't do it. Um, but I can remember sitting and listening to the chainsaws and just being heartbroken, you know, just being so heartbroken and thinking of like that, all the, the birds and the animals and all that, you just get so much excitement from seeing when we were there and just thinking, where where are they going to go? Or are they going to get squished? Or, you know, what's going to happen? Um, and yeah, things like that do definitely have a profound impact. And I think in my teens, uh, being involved in the in the GM, they had uh, GM trials over here, Monsanto trials, and uh, there was a, a campaign organised to go and, and pull them up. And that was, I mean, it was wonderful people involved, and it was it was successful. But I can still remember you know, getting to the site and, and Monsanto had had big security dogs there, you know, like barking in behind the ditch. Um, and there was a court case afterwards and, and watching the footage from the court case. And it was all zooming in on our faces, even though I was I was still a child at the time, pretty much zooming in on our faces, zooming in on all the registration plates and following people that had come from Dublin, like, you know, videoing them all getting on the bus and um, it was it just it really made me understand in well in, in as much as I could and still can understand um, the weight of of these people, you know, and and the violence kind of the 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 level of violence that's just always kind of behind the wall, just waiting um, if if there's enough resistance to things. And so things like that definitely yeah, had a had a profound kind of impact on my sense of how the world worked. Um, and how fragile it was is. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that's a important thread is that people have to start being aware of this when they're young and yeah, taking the kids to endangered places. When I was in Oregon, I took some high school students out to logging sales where they were going to be cutting the forest and out to tree sits and to talk to the tree sitters on the 
walkie talkies and stuff like that. And I think it, it made it more poignant rather than this is just, here's a forest, here's a forest that might not be here in six months. And yeah, the kids said this was their best field trip. They really enjoyed it. I mean, they got to walk around the woods all day instead of being in class, like who wouldn't like that? But I think it perhaps resonated with them and that might be the way because it seems like this is a common thread for a lot of us. So yeah, homing in a little bit more on that, but uh, let's let's conclude, but, but talking about endangered critters and, and landscapes, one final question. What is a Selkie and have you seen one? <laughs> a Selkie? No, I think, aren't Selkies Scottish rather than Irish? They could travel though. <laughs> well, the terrible thing is I don't, I don't know how to actually qualify exactly what a, what a Selkie is. And no, I haven't seen one. <laughs> well, that is exactly what a Selkie would say. So a Selkie, and they are in Ireland. So so a selkie is a seal that appears to be a seal, but it's actually a human. It appears in the form of a human woman and it comes on the land and, and there's stuff that goes on like that. So somebody who is actually a selkie always denies that there are selkies. So I think we're on to you, but anyway. maybe that's my new calling. <laughs> Could be. I'm working on the Bigfoot issue here, so you, you can figure that out over there. But anyway, Susan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate the time that you took to talk to us and all the work that you've been doing. Do you have any final words for the listeners? Um, yeah, I would just like to actually plug uh, Shale Must Fall's next day of action, actually, if that's all right. Um, so we've just settled on the date uh, only a few days ago, and it's going to be on March 22nd because that's World Water Day. Um, so what we're hoping to do is, is broaden it out, not just from for fracking. Obviously, Shale Must Fall, we'll be, we'll be still, you know, organizing ourselves, but we're going to be inviting um, other organizations and other other activist groups to get involved and just highlight uh, the fact that it's it's World Water Day and you know target strategic actions um, and bring a lot of the testimonies from from people that are impacted in the global south bring them to the doors of the the offices in Europe and elsewhere and try and actually make World Water Day rather than kind of being a greenwashing exercise make it into a day in the year that people actually come out and, and really fight for for our precious resource, um, which is now trading on, on the stock market, as you know, as I'm sure you know. Uh, so yeah, I just like to drop that in. And um, thank, yeah, thank you so much for having me, Josh. It's been lovely being here with you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And what's a link for that, if there is any link? Uh, if you, it will all be up on Shale Must Fall, um, the Shale Must Fall website, which is shalemustfall.org. Um, and we're also on like social media and you know facebook and instagram etc um so yeah that will be and also just to give a shout out to two of our dgr members who started their campaign up at thacker pass in nevada uh, where there's a, an enormous uh, lithium mine proposed in an absolutely remarkably beautiful beautiful area um so yeah um save thacker pass is another uh, just if you go on, have a look and support if you can. Um, it's a really, really important project as well. So. Great. Well, thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much. <laughs>